This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, next um, we're going to look at the economic considerations, which, uh, as we all know, are of paramount importance. Um, we know there'll be some additional costs, but we need to manage that in the best possible way. And to address that, we have... Uh, Maximilian Offhammer from UC Berkeley. All right, uh, thank you very much for having me here. I hope this doesn't say 10 minutes, it should say 20 minutes, because there's no way I can get through all these slides in 10. Uh, thank you, Ram, for, for inviting me back. There are very few people when they call you say no to. It, it's mom. And uh, when Ram calls, uh, the same thing applies. When I was in graduate school here, everybody told me to run away from interdisciplinarity because you, you, you'll never get tenure. Ram told me the exact opposite, and it worked very well. So I, I owe him a large part of my, my career. Uh, this was a true pleasure working on this particular chapter. Uh, it was a team of environmental and energy economics uh, throughout the UC system, which has been really well uh, integrated really well already through a generous grant from UCOP a couple of years ago, which allowed for integration of faculty and graduate students. So uh, there are fewer informational barriers, and the work shows for it. The UC system certainly has the greatest, uh, what do you say, baseball bullpen of environmental uh, and energy economists in the world of any university system. Uh, Whenever I talk about climate change solutions, and they brought a German environmental economist to tell you about this issue, so get ready for some excitement. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a really divisive issue, the newspapers say. Whenever I open the New York Times, oh, there's all these sides. To me, the issue is really simple. If we don't do anything about these issues, we're directly taking welfare away from future generations. Uh, another word for this is theft. It's intergenerational theft, but I don't care what aisle, uh, side of the aisle you sit on. Nobody likes theft, right? So that was sort of my, uh, to get you, get you engaged. And now we get to the text-heavy, boring slides. Use me to click. Here we go. Uh, even Milton Friedman uh, probably. He was my neighbor in San Francisco, much nicer apartment than mine, uh, would agree that markets sometimes do fail. Uh, so we teach how markets work in undergraduate economics classes uh, to thousands and thousands of undergraduates every year. But in order to get the nice predictions of how markets do well and maximize social, uh, social welfare, we make some really stringent assumptions. So I'm not going to give you a full economics lesson here, uh, but I'm just going to extract the ones that really are salient to the, the climate issue. So there are three markets failure, market failures that really matter here. The first one is the, the big one here. It's the mitigation one. It's the emissions one. We're currently using the atmosphere in most parts of the world as a free dumping ground for greenhouse gas emissions. This is another word of saying you're simply not paying for the full cost of or full damages of the gallon of gasoline you burn or the ton of coal you combust. So there's a pricing distortion here where uh, fossil fuels are simply too cheap. They should be more expensive since you should be paying for the full cost of using those fossil fuels. This is market failure number one. And what this will lead to, and this is Econ 101, will be an overconsumption of fossil fuels, which you know I don't need to point back to Bill Collins' graph or, or Ram's graphs from earlier. We have certainly seen so far. 
There are two other market failures that are significant in this particular area of inquiry. The next one is innovation. California is the state of innovation. I live 20 miles north of Silicon Valley. Uh, Everybody drives a Tesla uh, and has Apple watches and all kinds of stuff. But California is a hotbed of innovation in many, many sectors. The other thing we teach undergraduates is if you invent something and you can't prevent others from replicating what it is you're doing uh, and others steal some of your rents and profits, you will not invest as much as you should in innovation. So one issue here is if we're thinking about low-carbon technologies or innovative solutions to the climate problems, uh, from the private sector perspective and uh, the public perspective here, we don't see enough investment in these technologies. For some of them, that's certainly not true, the smaller ones. But if you're thinking about bigger technologies where a single experiment can cost a billion or two billion, I'm thinking of carbon sequestration and storage, for any individual firm, except for maybe Apple has that kind of war chest, uh, it's not something a, a firm would engage in. So the public sector usually steps in and provides that public good. Market failure number three, and this gets a little bit technical, and I'll make a nice weight loss analogy right before lunch uh, to keep you uh, away from the dessert tables. Uh, Market failure number three is when an individual country abates emission, meaning reduces its emissions, everybody benefits from it. What that, of course, means is there will be free riders, right? I engage, or the Germans, I'm German, did I mention that? Uh, The Germans have engaged in a tremendous amount of emissions reductions and environmental policy. When it comes to climate change, everybody stands to gain those benefits. Again, basic economic theory tells you if there's a free rider problem, which is inherent in a public goods setting, uh, people will under-provide public goods, What this means, we get too few commitments towards emissions abatement, which is certainly what we've seen uh, coming out of Kyoto, and I will argue we are running the danger of coming out of Paris uh, with as well. All right, so let me uh, give you a brief uh, overview, just sort of three minutes, well, maybe even two minutes, of how we regulate emissions, uh, and then let me give you the six recommendations that came from our chapter, uh, the economics chapter, which actually led to a really lively debate with engineers and chemists and, and all kinds of people I didn't even know were in the UC system, uh, and now I do, which was an, an ancillary benefit. So there are two ways of regulating uh, emissions. If you want to reduce emissions, you can either use a stick or you can use a carrot. A stick, uh, the types of policies we're talking about here are so-called command and control policies. So you can think of emission standards. You tell individual firms or sectors, this is how much you get to emit, and that's it. It's like telling your kid at dinner, you're going to eat those carrots, and that's it. Right? So command and control. You can also tell firms what they should use to produce their goods and services. Low, uh, low carbon fuels is one way of doing that, or you, you know, out, outlaw coal and switch towards natural gas and other low or no carbon uh, sources of fuel. And then there are, of course, the regulator's favorites, technical standards, where you tell a firm what type of technology the firm has to use in order to produce its goods. Uh, anybody here from the private sector? Raise your hands. How much do you like to be told what technology to use? Not very much, right, generally. But uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Incentive-based regulations are, of course, economists' favorite. 
Uh, Incentive-based regulations mean you set, you correct the incentives in a way, those are usually monetary, in a way that the individual firm will do uh, what's optimal in order to meet the target that you've set yourself. Could be an emissions target or something like that. But you let the firm choose how they meet that goal. They get to choose the technology. There's flexible mechanisms for trading, for example. So one way of doing that are emissions taxes. We slap a tax on each ton of carbon, and you let firms decide how to you know, choose their particular fuel they want to use. If coal all of a sudden is too expensive, they switch to natural gas. That tax, in theory, should be equivalent to roughly the amount of external damage that ton of coal or that ton of carbon does to the global environment. Notice the word global, not local. Uh, cap and trade is another incentive-based uh, scheme. Here in California, of course, we have uh, one of the largest functioning cap and trade systems in the world, uh, where you simply say, we as California, for a set of sectors, only allow for the emission of a certain number of greenhouse gases, so you specify the number of tons, you issue rights to pollute, so if you want to pollute, you have to hold a permit, right? and then you let individual firms trade these permits. The benefit of this is, if it's really expensive for you to reduce emissions and it's cheap for somebody else, you just might buy a permit from somebody else and that other firm reduces its emissions more cheaply. There are, of course, ethical concerns with this because should we be issuing rights to pollute is always a big question here. But what both a tax and a cap-and-trade system do, uh, they will achieve emissions reductions uh, at least cost. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. The third incentive-based regulation here is, well, we know some technologies that are uh, carbon-free or low-carbon, right? So maybe we want to incentivize those types of technologies. As of tomorrow, I will have functioning solar panels on my roof. Why did I decide to get solar panels on my roof? Uh, there's a giant 30% income tax write-off, plus I will be also green and electricity will be funneled into my plug-in hybrid directly uh, from the sun. So the notion here is regulators can pick technologies that they think should be scaled up and issue monetary incentives for individuals to adopt these. The thing we have to remember here with subsidies, those dollars don't just come out of a printing press. They have to come from somewhere. They usually come from income tax revenue and then get redistributed towards these technologies. So Let's get through some of the, the recommendations here, and then we can have a lively debate about how economists have it all wrong or all right. I, I, there's no middle ground ever. The rooms are always divided. Uh, but one thing economists do is when we think about whether a policy is good or not, we're worrying about three aspects here, and two of which economists are generally pretty good about saying something about. The third one, uh, Governor Brown would probably have a really lively debate with us up here since he likes to talk about Rawls and you know Bentham and, and folks like that. But let's go in order here. Uh, cost effectiveness simply means if you want to reduce a ton of carbon, a ton of emissions, you should do it at least cost, right? Why achieve a certain goal not at least cost is one question we often ask. But just because a solution is least cost doesn't necessarily mean it's good policy. So economists layer on top this notion of efficiency 
where a policy is efficient if it maximizes the difference between benefits and costs. If costs are greater than benefits, it's usually not a good policy. If benefits are greater than costs, uh, it's a good policy. And this is built into federal rulemaking and state-level rulemaking as well. So lots of economists do lots of free consulting for uh, the federal government, helping them calculate these benefit-cost ratios. Uh, this is where the social cost of carbon comes in. The White House has issued a, an interagency working group report that calculates what is the damage from one additional ton of carbon. And that number is being used in, I believe, about 70 federal rulemakings so far in these benefit-cost calculations. So climate change is moving into that territory. The third thing we worry about is equity, and this is frankly where economists aren't great. There are some economists that are great, but when we worry about who suffers the consequences from unabated climate change and who suffers the consequences from climate policy, uh, how should we decide what's good and bad policy is a question here. Right? Should everybody's welfare be valued equally? Uh, should we worry about the well-being of the least well-off individual in society? So there are a number of ways of thinking about the equity implications of climate policy, and that's where I think, going forward, we can do a lot more thinking and involve uh, folks who are certainly not economists but are in, in, in philosophy departments and, and political science departments, for example. So let's get to some recommendations. Again, I'm not speaking here for the entire uh, Bending the Curve author team. This is just the author team of the chapter we were on. But this is what we as economists and all the authors were economists on this chapter agreed on. The first goal we should want to worry about here is that the goal of policy should be to reduce the damages caused by greenhouse gases, right? That's the goal. There is an environmental problem that will result in damages by people or, and plants and frogs uh, worldwide. Uh, so we should focus on minimizing the damages. Why do I even have to say that? Well, in the discussion, when you look at the policy solutions going forward, everybody has their favorite technology, right? We should reduce fuels by 50%. We should put low-carbon fuels into the fuel supply. We should pick solar panels, we should pick uh, CCS, whatever it is you want. But when we think about going forward with meaningful climate policy, we should always remember that the target here is to minimize damages, not to roll out our favorite uh, technology. Because frankly, it just puts blinders on you. And blinders, unless you're a horse in 18th century Vienna, are not a good thing, all right? Uh, well, and I'm going to make it explicit here, too, that we've been worried very much about mitigation at this point, uh, you know, reducing the emissions of greenhouse gases. But when you're worried about the quanti quantifying future damages, it's not just mitigation. It's adaptation, too. This is a joint problem now. There is so much climate change baked in already uh, that my seven-year-old is going, certainly going to live through, that we have to look at the problem as a joint problem, a mitigation and adaptation problem, not just uh, emissions reductions. So this is, of course, I lose my membership card in the American Economic Association if I don't say this, all right? Uh, economists would always agree that incentive-based instruments are preferable to sort of con command and control technologies. We really like our carbon taxes. We really like our cap-and-trade systems. So Ram and I had a very nice, uh, lengthy phone conversation about this. It wasn't an argument, uh, but, but I, 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 it was a good, well, yeah, it was an argument. Uh, <laughs> 
But there's always RAM 1, right? So, so, so that was easy. But when we think about going forward with these amazing market-based instruments, so if you sit in your ivory tower, you have your window open, the air is clean, and the sun is shining, and you live in the land of theory, uh, yes, all of these things work very, very well. But uh, as you may have heard, China has announced that it will roll out a, a national level cap and trade system very soon, which is an amazing achievement, right? That China has agreed to doing something about aggregate emissions. This is amazing. But in order for a cap and trade to work, you need to know who's emitting what, right? A cap and trade system and a carbon tax don't really work unless you know how much people are emitting. So in order for these wonderful market-based technologies to really work, what you need is emissions inventories. If you don't have emissions inventories, it's a little bit like going on a diet without a scale, right? You stand in the mirror in the morning, I look good today, right? Uh, but a scale really tells you how much weight you've lost, so emissions inventories allow you to figure out how much your emissions have come down by. So if you just implement these market-based technologies without really giving it the tools, the, these, uh, these uh, policy things, policy things, these policies need to work, you have a beautiful cap-and-trade system on the books, but you know, you're not getting the, the emissions reductions. So there's a big literature in economics now spearheaded by Michael Greenstone and a bunch of others that really focuses on monitoring and, and figuring out how do you make these policies that are on the books work. And there's a lot of uh, theoretical and empirical work going into how to design better market-based policies, which I'm happy to send you papers on. Uh, it gets a little bit nerdy now, and I only have three and a half minutes, so I'm going to go through the next ones pretty quickly. Uh, Emissions leakage is a big thing. If in California we regulate climate change and we engage in all these mitigation measures, maybe dirty industries move next door and all we've got is all of a sudden, you know, the same carbon but coming out of an unregulated area. So we, when we as a jurisdiction that does, just doesn't have to be California, that could be more broader than that, we have to deal with the issue of leakage, all right? The issue of leakage, there are methods and lots of economics papers out there that figure out how do you allocate uh, permits and cap-and-trade systems, for example, to minimize leakage, but this is the big one, right? If the carbon just goes elsewhere, we've done nothing uh, real here. The other thing I would like to argue, if we use command and control type tools, we like command and control type tools. Standards are really nice because there's no price that appears on a website, right? You don't know what it costs firms to reduce their emissions because it's a standard, right? A shiny gadget gets implemented somewhere, but we don't really know what the costs are versus with the cap and trade system, you know exactly what the cost of emissions reductions is because all you have to do is log onto the site and see what the price of permits is. So a lot of these standards here, renewable fuel standards, the low carbon fuel standards and so on, might be really, really costly, so they have to have a cost containment mechanism built in if you have to use these command and control methods. There's a nice thing, and we'll talk about Paris in a second. If we don't get full coverage of mitigation by all countries, right, if we just get the G20 on board or the G40 on board, we're going to have to start talking about border tax adjustments. If we have a climate club of the top 20 emitters, if you don't have a national uh, climate policy and you want to sell into the climate club, you're going to have to pay some form of carbon tax, which the UN folks 
are going to start getting migraines because this is technically really hard to do, but this is a conversation uh, we need to have. The last one, and this is the, the big one here, is in California, I mean, looking outside, it's gorgeous, right? This was my surf break out here. It's one of the most beautiful spots in the world. We like to worry about California's problems, but this is a global problem. What can California do to solve the global problem? Yes, we can do mitigation. If we reduce our emissions by 80%, we've reduced global emissions by 0.8 or 0.7%. It's not that much. But what California is, is a hotbed of innovation. So we need to figure out ways to incentivize innovation in California as both private sector and public sector, I'm talking about the universities, the labs, uh, and you know, all kinds of other research institutions, to help us come up with solutions, technological solutions, whose goal it is to be exportable to the developing world. Right? This is not about making money. There was that big disaster with that pill lately. Uh, this is not about making money, but this is about coming up with solutions that will help the world fix its climate problem. So I'm going to take... 30 seconds out of the questions for one second. So we're heading to Paris with a new strategy. It's a little bit like a weight loss meeting. Everybody steps up and says, I agree to lose 20% of my body weight. Substitute body weight with greenhouse gas emissions. If we agree on these goals, we all go home and we try and meet those goals. It is easier to lose weight with a bunch of buddies. We all know that, right? But the issue here, it's still a self-imposed goal. And as somebody who's been trying to shed a few pounds, it's really hard to do. And I don't have a Congress I have to report to. Uh, so I'll leave you with this depressing slide here is how much warming are we going to get by 2100? This is a, a uh, science paper that just came out recently that looks at the current pledges by national uh, governments uh, the 2 degrees C path is at the bottom. The 4.5 degrees C path, which is a horror show, uh, is on top. And 3.5 is roughly where we're headed with the current commitments towards Paris. This is a science paper. This is not official policy. But this is roughly a ballpark estimate of where we are. So I apologize for robbing you of one minute of questions. And I thank you for listening. Thank, thank you, Max, for a wonderful talk. Uh, floor is open for questions. Thank you. I have a question about equity. Um, how do you deal with the problem? Where are you? I'm over here. All right. Sorry. Hand up. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. How do you deal with the problem that in the state of California, uh, a large number of low-income families depend on their cars and trucks for transportation and lacking access to good public transportation, if you put in incentives like higher gasoline taxes or things like that, you'd be putting in effect a highly regressive tax scheme, which is one of the arguments people often use against that particular policy. Great question. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to that point. Let's talk about a $100 carbon tax, right? Nobody is considering a $100 carbon tax except for us in the ivory tower, maybe. $100 carbon tax, if my math is right, is about a dollar tax on fuels, right? Uh, so the notion here is if you're looking at recent variation in gas prices, a dollar is, eh, you know, it, it's up there. So if we're talking about the current $12 permit price, you're talking about $0.12 cents in, in uh, gas prices. 
There is a, a, a thing written into the policy, apologies to the lawyers, I don't know what the thing is called, but that prescribes uh, that a share of the cap-and-trade revenue be used to help affected communities. So this doesn't, of course, decrease gas prices in those communities, but in theory it should be recycled to those communities in the form of either you know, their state income taxes or in, in, in terms of other ways. So carefully thinking about using these tax revenues uh, and cap and trade revenues, and I will not be speaking about trains, uh, but really thinking about you know, the recycling here I think would be, a, would be a good thing to do. So thank you for that question. Question in the back. Yeah, um, great, t- great talk, Max. And this is a meeting about mitigation, and thanks so much for bringing up adaptation. And I'd love to hear any, any thoughts you have on how treating adaptation and mitigation together can really strengthen our mitigation. So I think this is a really important question. My, my current research agenda focuses on air conditioning because I think it's underappreciated in the, in the economics literature. So, of course, air conditioning is one of the main adaptation uh, mechanisms for rich people in California. I, I consider Californians to be rich on average uh, relative to the globe. You know, one of the adaptation mechanisms is going to bend the emissions path upwards is if we get, because, it, you know, San Francisco all of a sudden has the climate of Fresno, San, Francisco's, San Franciscans all of a sudden have air conditioners, they're going to use more energy uh, and there will be more emissions. California, not such a big deal, but if you're thinking about China, India, and places like that, we're all of a sudden talking about really massive increases in in mitigation. So this is a negative interaction here. The positive interaction here is I'm really happy to see that utility planners and planners in general, both in the public sector and the private sector, are starting to look at some of these maps that that Bill has put put together. Bill has put together something called the Climate Readiness Institute in, in the Bay Area together with Stanford and Davis, which focuses on how to help private sector and public sector institutions adapt to the challenge of local climate change. So these adaptation plans aren't something we can talk about globally. These adaptation plans are local. So San Diego area should have one way of looking at it, Bay Area another one, and we have to think about this very much as a local issue versus, yeah, all right. Okay, let's take one, just one, one more question. question okay. Al Swedler, San Diego State University. I'm intrigued by your last comment that one way to really deal with climate change is for California to use its entrepreneurial and innovation economy or energy for products and services that can be used globally. I run a program for the California Energy Commission, Mm -hmm. which specifically gives funding, fair amount, for new energy innovation products. And this ties in with the previous speaker. We are compelled only to fund projects which assist California ratepayers and citizens. We cannot even consider, by law, technologies or proposals from outside of California. So we've got a mismatch here. Somehow we've got to combine what you're suggesting, which I think is very important and we really can make a, a contribution, to the mentality that you can only spend state and even federal money that benefits citizens within the jurisdiction. So I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. So the governor is going to be here tomorrow, so that would be a good thing to, to feed the staffers that, that tag along. Uh, the other thing here is, you know, we've spent a lot of money putting a lot of solar panels on a lot of homes in California using rebates uh, as a way to get there. And it worked, right? Uh, Mount Soledad is covered in solar panels. 
but thinking about how do we use cap-and-trade revenue and what to do with it. If we accept the current sort of, well, you can't use this because there's this rule on the book that doesn't let you solve this problem, then to me the rule is wrong, right? Then we need to think about how do we change rules in order to you know, actually attack a problem instead of accepting the status quo rules that won't let us solve the, the problem at hand. Because innovation is something that would help us attract people uh, come to the state, and it's something that we're really good at. So changing rules is, you know, not what government likes, but it, sometimes it's time to do just that. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Max, for wonderful You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.